There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see On WCN-TV Hi, friends. Pastor Mike with you again here on WCN-TV. We are going to be joined today by Dr. Gary Lovejoy, and we're going to talk about marriages and his book, Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? And I can tell you, folks, from, from having um, looked through Gary's book, they tell us a lot, a lot that has to do with, with marriages uh, even today. You know, the Bible is full of relationship stories, some positive, Joseph and Mary, for example, and others downright toxic. Ahab and Jezebel would be an example of that. But in Dr. Gary's book, Marriages in the Bible, he looks at and categorizes marriages, and and I think he did a fantastic job. He looks at heartless marriages, problem-centered marriages, tender marriages, maturing marriages, righteous marriage. And and listen, no one gets it all right or all wrong, except for the possible exception of Ahab and Jezebel. Most of us, though, grow and develop beyond infatuation. And I posted something from your book today, uh, Gary, on uh, social media that was kind of a teaser for your book that drew a contrast between love and infatuation and why it is necessary for us to grow past that. You know, the statistics tell us that contemporary marriages fail at close to 50%. For those who who marry again, second marriages are even higher, and third marriage is higher than that. Uh, And what that tells us is folks are not learning from failure. They're not learning from their mistakes. But Dr. Gary believes that you can. So here's hope for those of you who have joined us today and may be in a struggling marriage. There is hope and um, there is opportunity and a good chance that if you'll bear in and study the scriptures, and this would be a good book to examine marriages, uh, that your marriage is going to survive. Dr. Gary uh, Lovejoy earned a BA uh, in psychology from California State University, Long Beach, an MA from California State University in Los Angeles, an MRE from 
uh, Fuller Theological Seminary and a PhD from United States International University. And I welcome you to WCN TV, Gary. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, oh, it's, it's a it's a pleasure. Uh, look through your book. Really enjoyed the format and the way it was laid out. Um, and I'm just going to run down through. And this is for our viewers. This is, this is for those who have joined us. But you look at the humility of happiness. So that's part one. And then part two, you begin to look at these different categories of marriages from the scriptures. And you point out uh, some of the strong points. You point out some of the weak points and and what led to them being categorized uh in the category that you have them in. So patriarchal marriages, heartless marriages, problem-centered marriages, tender marriages, maturing marriages, righteous marriages, and then summing up. The epilogue was was uh, very, very good, I thought. Summing up all of this and uh, describing the anatomy of a good marriage. What does a good marriage uh, look like? And I would like to, if possible, Gary, I'd like to end up on that so that we can end on a on a positive note and gives people some pointers. I'm sure you would be interested in that as well. So what, what right out of the gate, Gary, why a book on marriages and why marriage? I mean, there's a plethora of information out there that, that you could have accessed to talk about marriages in a contemporary context, but you chose the Bible very wise, by the way, but what led you to do that and analyze these marriages presented to us in the pages of scripture? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, one of the things that having been in the uh, field for over 40 years, I've had a private practice, and so I've seen literally thousands of marriages. I, I focused on marriage counseling for the most part. And um, uh, and one of the things, that I, and of course, obviously in my profession, I, I do a lot of reading and I, I've read many uh, books on marriage. But one of the things that struck me was that while there are some very good principles that are, are elucidated along with uh, buttressing it with you know passages that they draw from scripture and all that's good. But one of the things I recognized uh, and that was missing in all of them is that none of them ever actually talked about the marriages in the Bible, the actual marriages in the Bible. And um, so that I, I decided to go back and, and read through all the marriages. I didn't include all of them because I would have been 500 pages if I had them all, but, uh, but um, but I started going through them, and I, with this question in my mind, uh, I was struck, first of all, by how much detail is in there on some of these marriages. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, why did God take the time to describe it in such detail? Now, all the, many of these marriages, and perhaps all of them, are connected to uh, the flow of redemptive history. However, uh, some of these marriages, uh, he included details that wasn't, you would think, well, why did they include that? You know? But uh, I began to realize as I started reading through them that these marriages, as, as they were described, were depicting certain things that were either going wrong or going right in the relationship. In other words, God was God is not a, a random God. He's a God of purpose. Everything he does is with purpose. And, and, I, and I began to realize that he was uh, including these details in these marriages in order to point out things that were helpful to a marriage or things that were destructive to a marriage. And, and so it was like a jigsaw puzzle. As I read through all of them, each of them had one, uh, one item, one important principle that, uh, that seemed to be important in, in 
either driving the success of that relationship or destroying that relationship. And as I put them each together, like a jigsaw puzzle at the end, I was, uh, I was surprised to see uh, an entire profile or blueprint, shall we say, uh, of what makes uh, a successful, happy marriage. And this is God speaking. And, and I thought, well, uh, rather than having the author speak, let God describe these marriages because he sees the, the faults and he knows what makes a good marriage. He ordained it. And so, um, uh, so he, uh, I followed that line and, uh, and I began to, uh, uh, it really expanded my understanding of scripture It understand, expanded my understanding of marriage. And, um, and it was uh, uplifting because each time I, at each of the marriage I was reading through, I was really, realizing and reminding myself, this is what God thinks. This is what God thinks about our marriage. And most of those things that are mentioned, I've encountered, in fact, all of those things that are, I mentioned, I've encountered personally in the counseling room. So things that went on in marriages uh, uh, millennia ago in the ancient world are the same uh, because we're still human beings. They're the same struggles we have today. Yes, yeah. To write about it. Yes, yeah, and I... I was actually discussing a couple of the points uh, from your book with my wife, Kathy, over dinner. Um, one of the points, and we'll, we'll get to these uh, in our conversation, I'm sure, but I talked a little bit about Abraham and Sarah, what, what you had to say in that, uh, in, in, in that chapter, and, and Isaac and Rebecca as well, uh, Jacob and Leah. So and We'll get to all that, but, but, but as you begin the book, you talk about marriage being a complex union, a, a complex union. Mm-hmm. Could you describe for those who have joined us today what you mean by that phrase? That's a good question. Um, it's complex union in the sense that when two people get married, uh, it's not just two individuals. It's two families coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two sets of expectations. Mm-hmm. Two sets of uh, communication styles, two sets of conflict resolution uh, styles. Uh, and so it's a complex interaction of many things. And one of the things I first do when I'm working with a couple is I ask them, first of all, what their expectations were. Coming into marriage, what was their expectation? What did they hope to see? What were they expecting to see? And, uh, and then uh, secondly, um, I then began to ask them a little bit about their families of origin. What, what went on in their marriage how did, uh, and their families? What, how did they resolve conflict in their families? Because what people learn in their families of origin, pretty much they take with them as they leave home. And oftentimes when they come together with another person coming from that home, that's a different set of expectations and, and uh, communication styles, that, that uh, they begin to clash. And one of the things that I... Um, uh, I'm aware of in terms of, uh, of troubled marriages is that the woman is often um, talking about two things. She's, uh, the, the wife is talking about neglect, both emotionally and physically. And by physically, I, it, not just talking about sex, but I'm just talking about even touch, just the human touch, being uh, the, the tenderness that is displayed. And um, uh, and so they're, they, what they're saying is they're extremely lonely in their marriage, it's an, that, which is an irony because oftentimes they get married to avoid loneliness. And what they find is some of the most lonely people I've ever worked with are in marriage. And, um, uh, and, so, uh, and then the other thing is they, they talk about is uh, over-controlling husbands. 
And what happens in that relationship is there's a power struggle going on in this marriage. And it's going on in heavy duty sometimes. Um, generally speaking, in, in this regard, uh, women are, are usually socialized um, uh, to be more emotionally aware than men are. That's an interesting aspect of it. It's true. And they're usually more likely to perceive problems more quickly in a relationship and they want to talk about it. Oftentimes, the men do not. And um, uh, men are less likely to have the emotional awareness that their wives have in the relationship. And, uh, and they are um, not, they don't have as good communication skills usually. Um, and so therefore, they don't want to talk about it. They'll either withdraw or they'll get defensive. And of course, the other thing, what men most uh, are, are most troubled by in the relationship is that the, um, the fact that they feel that, they, that their wife does not respect them. For them, the real issue so oftentimes is the sense of adequacy very strong in men. And then when, when a wife is just constantly criticizing him, they feel like, um, uh, they feel like they are, they can never do anything right. And, uh, and so, um, uh, so the right result is it can be a real marriage killer. And so there's, there's liabilities on both sides of this, of the, uh, uh, of the aisle here. But, um, but when, because when a woman perceives she's not getting her needs met, then she becomes more critical. When she gets more critical, then she's inadequate. And the two uh, begin to coalesce into uh, constant arguing, and um, and they start to be, begin to develop a pattern that is very toxic and very difficult to get out of. They keep going around and around. We have a, a term in uh, in our field we call it self-summarizing syndrome where the person keeps saying, well, what I'm trying to say, well, you're not listening. What I'm really meaning to say, and they keep repeating themselves over and over and over, thinking if I can just say it some way that they can hear it, that uh, maybe they'll understand what I, what's going on inside of me. And so um, so it's uh, these are some of the issues in the complex. And so it's a very complex interaction, uh, much more complex than individual counseling, which I do as well, a lot as well. But, uh, but it's much more complex because it's not – the interaction is not just additive, it's multiplicative. And, yes. uh, and so, um, so all these things are interacting at, at once. And you, as a therapist, you have to be aware of all these dynamics to, in order to understand where they're coming from, why they are coming from, the, the position they are, and it helps you to understand then uh, the nature of the conflicts that are, seem to be repetitive and going nowhere except to destroy the relationship. And many people come into counseling when they're on the brink of divorce, they wait until the very end when so much damage has been done. Yeah, yeah, and and so so Gary, why why do you think that is? Uh, is that just um, part of our human nature? We, we we don't believe what our eyes are seeing. This can't happen to me. We our, our marriage is fine. We just need. To, why do people wait? Because I I've I've seen that of course. My, my counseling experience is, is a lot less than what yours is as a as a professional in the field. But as a pastor, um, I still do that as well. And it's been my experience that the relationships are so strained. It's, it's almost tight as a guitar string, I say sometimes, um, b- between the couple. And, and then they'll seek help. Why, do, do, you, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Yeah, I think what we were talking about a moment ago... Um... Men tend to either withdraw, like I say, withdraw or get defensive. Uh, it's hard for, to talk about it, and and uh, they've been basically trained not to talk about it. 
and uh, and women become very frustrated with that. And um, and but instead of being able to draw them out, they sometimes in their frustration become. That's why they develop a critical spirit, and that then becomes a very toxic uh, arrangement. But um, uh, but many times they don't want to. They don't come into counseling either to you as a pastor or to me as a, as a count, professional counselor. They don't come in because they don't want to display their dirty linen in front of a stranger. Mm. Now, they don't want to, or in your case, it may be, I don't want to display the, the dark side of our relationship to my pastor. You yeah. know, what, he, what would he think of me? You know, and, uh, and same thing with the, with the I, I had one, uh, one client who came in. She was having a great deal of difficulty with her marriage. And, uh, and she would sneak in uh, into the office because she was afraid someone would see her and that that would be devastating because she, she was busy trying to establish a, a, a persona that she didn't have issues, but she, there were plenty of issues. And, uh, and so she, uh, she uh, would, it would uh, schedule appointments at a time when she thought no one would see her come in. It was, she, it, and so people are uh, there. They take privacy sometimes to a limit, and uh, and it's detrimental. And they keep thinking, well, we can solve it ourselves. We don't need anybody to sort through our, our baggage. We can do it ourselves. But generally speaking, they don't, and they can't. And one of the reasons why is because they are the participants in these ruts that people get into. Um, maybe if, if you have a moment, I can share an example of that. Please do. Okay. Um, when I talk about getting into rut, sometimes when a couple comes in, they are so stuck. And, and I, I remember a woman came in and her husband refused to come in, which is not uncommon, by the way. Um, in fact, by the way, in terms of initiating divorce, 70 to 80 percent of spouses who file for divorce are women. And part of that reason that there's been a large increase in the last uh, 25 years. And the reason for that part partly is because uh, women uh, are it don't take as much of a financial blow as they used to. They make as much. Sometimes they make as much money as their husbands do. Sometimes more, and uh, and that plus the fact that divorces have become easier to get, especially with the uh, uh, with the uh, legalization of no fault marriage uh, divorces, and so uh, so women have been more emboldened to do that because they're unhappy. And uh, in any case, this this gal comes to me. And she said, and she talked about our marriage. And she said, we've had for five years, and I, I was willing to give her a medal for, for tolerance of how, how long they've handled, handled it. Uh, that for five years, they argued every single day. Wow. Uh, it, it was amazing that they were still together and they were getting to, near the end. And, um, but she said, uh, she said, I, well, what happens? And she said, well, he hates his job and uh, he literally loathes his job. But he won't get another one because he doesn't feel like he can find another one that pays as well. And so he comes home and he's angry and he's uh, and uh, he's upset and all the rest. And he almost always takes it out on me. Almost every day he comes in and he's got a chip on his shoulder and he starts saying, "Well, I'm no shrinking violet. I fight back." I said, "What do you do?" And she described how she then she knew she fought below the belt. In fact, this is their their interactions were very similar to uh, David and Michael in mm. that passage. Um, and so they would, she would they get an argument. I said, well, do you know how he's going to approach you when he comes home? Because it's, it's so regular. 
she said, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's going to do and say, almost, you know, it's pretty close to similar every day. And, uh, and so then I asked her, I said, does he know how you're going to respond? And she had a sly smile on her face and said, yeah. <laughs> she says, he knows exactly how I'm going to respond. And I looked at him, I said, you know, one of your problems is you're way too predictable. She looked at me kind of strangely and said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know exactly how he's going to respond. He knows exactly how you're going to respond. He said, if you want to change your relationship, somehow you're going to get out of, need to get out of that rut. So I said to her, I said to her, I said, uh, I, I, when you go home today, stop by the store and pick up a, uh, a water pistol and fill it with water and put it in your purse. And the next time he comes in and he starts in on you, instead of arguing like you usually do, pull out the water pistol, give him a shot. <laughs> and, uh, and then run out of the room giggling. So I think, can you do that? She said, yeah. Do you think that would be different than what you usually do? Yeah, absolutely it would be. <laughs> so she did. And I said, well, I'll see you in two weeks. And so she comes back. And when she comes back in two weeks, she's just radiant, absolutely radiant. And uh, I said, what happened? And she, and she says, well, first of all, I just want you to know that uh, uh, my husband is waiting outside and uh, he, he would like to come in and join us. I said, oh, wow. uh, I said, well, so what happened? And he, she said, well, yeah, I did it. And you said, I, I went home, uh, went by the store, picked up a water pistol, filled it up with water. And, uh, and when he came in and he started in on me like that, instead of what I usually do, I pulled out my pistol and gave him a shot, uh, hit him right between the eyes. I, said, I, started, I ran out of the room giggling. But I couldn't help it. I had to look over my shoulder to see how he was responding. And he said he was standing there with totally stunned look with water dripping out of his nose. But that looked like, what's that all about? But she said, you know, one thing it did, it stopped the argument. And uh, that was great. the next night, same thing happened again. I squirted him again. The third <laughs> night came and she said, I pulled out my uh, water gun. And I whipped around to get him and I was tearing down the barrel of his water gun. <laughs> so I gave him a shot, he gave me a shot back, and we had an old-fashioned water gun fight all through the house, laughing our heads off. And she said we were literally soaking. We were both soaking wet. We fell down on the living room floor, wet wet, and just laughing our heads off. And, she said, and they, they looked at each other and said, you know what? This is the first time we've laughed in five years. Wow. Years. And that's what, that's what broke the mesmerizing impact of that uh, of that uh, uh, rut that they were in, that they, they were so stuck. And they so they sat up at that, soaking wet as they were, and they talked seriously about their marriage for the first time. Yeah. Without yelling. And, and, they, and, they want, and, they, and I worked with them for another six months, and they had a fantastic marriage when they were done. And, um, but what was different, what was key was not the pistol itself, the water pistol. It was anything that would break up that that uh, that toxic pattern they were in that they were stuck in and repeating day after day, which is so destructive to a marriage. So that yeah. kind of gives you an idea of the importance of doing that, and that uh, and that happens in lots of marriages. They get stuck like that. Yeah, that's a great example. Great example, Gary, bringing bringing uh, something different to the yeah. <laughs> to the to the argument. Sometimes just... I would even say to them, you know. Ask yourself, what do I use? How do I usually respond in this situation? And then do something different. And sometimes yeah. leave it up to their imagination what they would do, as long as it's different. How much, uh, or, or or how big of a um, part of breaking through these routines and and our our learned and practiced behavior 
toward our spouses, how much, um, how much of a part does humility play? Oh, it plays a huge part. One of the things, the one of the reasons why people don't have humility, this may surprise people, is because they have very low self-esteem. Yeah. Low self-esteem is probably the number one reason for toxic relationships of all kinds. And what I mean by low self-esteem, I'm not talking about uh, when I talk about self-esteem, I'm talking about narcissism. I'm talking about respecting who you are. Yes. And um, and most of them don't. Most of them have very poor sense of self. Um, they they have a lot of self-hatred. And um, and what happens is, you if you want to be humble, you must have high self-esteem. It's an I irony. Low, the reason for that is because humility is um, is built on a, a, a sense of being loved by Christ and uh, and a sense of adequacy empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's and so uh, and what humility does is it turns us outward. It turns us outward so that we are serving others. Um, and, and many of the the uh, letters. Paul begins his letters as a slave in Christ. And as I'm a servant of his. And, uh, and that whole idea of servanthood is the idea of humility. And, hu and, and one of the greatest examples in scripture of this, is, and you, I'm sure, very, very familiar with this as a pastor, uh, was the, the battle that was going on within the disciples and the saying, who is the greatest in heaven? And they, they didn't think that Jesus heard them. He didn't think they knew what was going on, but he did, of course. And so he said to them, he said, that, which do you think is better? Which you have, which, which, who is greater? Uh, is, it the master, is it the master of the house or is it the servant who's serving him? And they all with one accord said, it's the master of the house, of course. In fact, actually he answered the question because it was so obvious. But then he said this, but, I identify with the servant. And what he was trying to say was that, uh, that if you want to be the greatest in heaven, you must be humble. You must humble yourself to serve others. And one of the things is that in, in marriage, and then if you apply this to marriage, is one of the most powerful factors in marriage is that when we have this kind of humility, and this is what happened with Elkanah, Elkanah and Hannah, uh, that when you have that kind of a sense of respect for self, you're more likely to, to uh, look outward to serve others. So, think of it this way. Instead of thinking less of yourself, you think of yourself less. And so, uh, and that frees you up. That's a, that's a powerful freedom. Because once you are no longer, because most people are preoccupied with themselves. You, we just finished Christmas, right? And, uh, and everybody takes pictures and they, they stand up in front of the tree, the family picture, and they take pictures. And then everybody wants to see the picture, right? What are the, what's the first person they look for? Themselves. They want to see what they look like. And if they, and if they don't, if it isn't a good picture of them, they say, oh, that's a terrible picture. If it's a good picture of them, if, even if the rest of them are, is not very good, it doesn't matter. It's a great picture. Uh, we, we tend to focus on ourselves. And we're thinking, well, what will others think? That's why people don't come into counseling. What will people think if they know I'm in counseling? They'll think I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. Or they think I'm really messed up, or that our relationship is, a, is is terrible, and I don't want to tell that people that. I want to keep that private. And so they they're always worried about what other people think, and uh, so all that mindset 
is very inward focus, right? We're focusing on ourselves. How do I look to others? How am I impressing others? Yes. And uh, but humility is just the opposite of that point. And that's why I say thinking instead of thinking less of yourself, you're actually thinking uh, have more respect for yourself. You're thinking less about yourself. And yes. That and that gives you the freedom to reach out to others and to serve them. And when that happens in a marriage, it's powerful. It's yes. absolutely powerful. Yes. And, uh, and then, then they feel that's what creates a sense of feeling beloved by your partner. Mm. You feel served by them. It's what mutual service is all about. It's what mutual giving is all about. That's yes. what, when we talk about submission, it isn't like the wife is some slave to her husband. No, no. It's because uh, it talks about he must, it talks about he must love his wife and she, and he, she in turn serves her husband. What's that? What does that mean? Well, love and submission are two sides of the same coin. In other words, basically, he was talking about mutual submission. Most yes. people don't want to see that passage that way, but that's what it's saying. That's, that's what it says. Talking about mutual submission, yeah. and that meaning serving one another, and that means humility. And when people and and, and if you have humility, that means you have a good self-esteem, and and so it, it, it it's a waterfall effect essentially. Yes. And so, and so if you start out hating yourself, you're going to be defensive immediately. You're going to be highly sensitized to things. You're going to misinterpret what they say and say, "Well, what do you mean by that?" You know, and and so they'll get uh, and then it ends in a fight. And why did it start that way? Because I'm already defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Friends, I am speaking with uh, author and counselor Dr. Gary Lovejoy. The book is Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? Uh, one of the points that you make in, in your book, Gary, that I thought was very good, and most people would not recognize, you point out that aggression and passivity are both, both of them, just different manifestations, are both covers right. for fear. There's a, there's a high degree of fear when marriages come to the point where there's, there's constant conflict in there. That's right. Um, it is true. And I think uh, there are a couple of things I can say in regards to that. First of all, making the distinction between the passivity is when uh, uh, in your inaction, in you're demonstrating you don't respect yourself. You withdraw. You keep silent. You don't share what's going on inside. So no one understands what's going on for you. And so no one can serve you if you, they don't know what your needs are. Uh, um, a certain a, aggression, on the other hand, is you don't respect the other person. And, uh, and so you attack and belittle and criticize. Um, and then, and, but assertiveness, which falls in between, assertiveness is when you respect yourself and the other person. And so you simply share your insides, your preferences, your opinions, your needs, uh, and you invite others to do the same. So that you, then it's out on the table, you can serve one another's needs. You can't serve the needs you don't know exist. Yeah. And, and that's what's well, part, important for transparency in relationships. And I've often said this. I said, uh, one of the things that's important in that relationship is cultivating our time with God. Uh, there's a passage in Psalm, Psalm you're very familiar with, I'm sure, uh, Psalm 46.10, where it says, Be still and know that I'm God. And the question is, why did he say that? Well, one of the reasons is we're always so busy and we don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but he said, be still. So you need to know that I am God. Why? 
because he is the wellspring of a believer's identity formation. And, uh, and so in our relationship with Christ, we are confronted with three important truths about ourselves. Number one, we realize our sin nature, that we are inveterate sinners. Uh, secondly, we discover our inherent lovability in him. And thirdly, we discover our, the power of his grace in confirming our essential worth. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said that humility is a sense of worth affirmed in Christ and a sense of adequacy and power by the Holy Spirit. And it includes that attitude of, of, of gratefulness for that Christ has covered our, uh, the cost of our sin. And yet uh, it, we have the modesty of how we see our own importance. Uh, but I think it's really important because um, uh, because so many people feel basically unlovable, and they, they feel um, uh, they feel worthless. I don't know how many people I come across that feel that way, and uh, and yet uh, they have bought into a, a seductive lie about themselves. I, what I often point out to them is this: I said, "Well, you are you are inherently lovable for this reason." That you were created in not not because of what other people think, which is how they judge it, but because you were uh, created in the image of God. And we read in First John that God is not just loving; He is love. He's the embodiment of love. Yes. And so He cannot He cannot create in His own image something that's not lovable. I mean, it's, I I draw I draw the uh, analogy. If you're going to have a child, when we first had our, had our first child, or you can think back when you had your first child, and did you sit around thinking about, well, are we going to have a raccoon or a squirrel or, or a, you know, what, what are we going to have? No, you automatically know you're going to have a baby. Why? Because from a physical standpoint, you can only produce that was in your own image, a, a human baby. Uh, and, in, and in an analogous sense, what God is saying is I've created you in my image. I am love. So that means that that uh, that you are inherently lovable. That doesn't mean all your behavior is lovable. Obviously, we sin and we uh, we uh, uh, we grieve him. But uh, but in terms of our person, who he created and gave strengths to, he says that's lovable. And I says I, I and that is of ultimate worth. If it wasn't, why would you? Why would I uh, send my son Jesus Christ to die on the cross? It's that cost was worth it to me. That's because you are worth it to me. And they often don't understand that. And I, and, and it, uh, I love the statement uh, that um, I, I think I have it here. Um, oh, yeah. It's A.W. A- Tozer once said, and he was describing the attributes of God. And he said this. He said, God never thinks any bad thoughts about anybody. And he never had bad thoughts about anybody. And, of course, he was talking about uh, God's thoughts about the, our person, not our sinful behavior. Separating person behavior, um, but nevertheless, a lot of Christians cannot imagine God doesn't feel negatively about them, and so that's a, an eye opener because the the analogy is um, uh, is irrefutable in terms of being created in the loving image of God. And so that and so that sense of worth is what prompts us to respond assertively to people, not aggressively or passively, both of which lead to problems in marriage. Yes, yes. I'd like to 
uh, touch on, Gary, uh, one example before we go further uh, from your book. And this is uh, the example of Abraham and, and Sarah and the importance of, of protecting our, our, our spouse and giving a, giving a, a clear sense, demonstrable um, pattern of behavior that secures our spouse's safety, security, gives them that, that uh, uh, not just a feeling, but a profound and deep sense that, that I am cared for, I am protected. Abraham is a perfect example to show what not to do in that context, isn't he? He is. Uh, yeah. Abraham was a very complex figure because on the one hand, he was uh, incredibly bold in his faith. And yes. uh, when God says, go to the land of Canaan, he, he didn't know what Canaan was where. He'd never been there. He didn't know whether it was hostile, whether he'd make a living there. But he obeyed the voice of God and took the risk. And so he was a risk taker there. But when it came to domestic issues, he was an entirely different person. And uh, he was not a risk taker. And, and as you know, not just once, but twice, he shoves his wife out in front and says, here, take my sister. Yeah. Uh, don't hurt me. And I often said to uh, and when I've uh, spoken to groups, and I said, how would you feel? I'd turn to the wives and how would you feel if uh, you're walking down the street and some dicey character is walking towards you and your husband shoves you in front and says, here, take her, don't, don't hurt me. How would you feel about your husband? I don't think you'd feel too positive about it. It's interesting that scripture does not describe, that's one place where he does not describe what she's going through, mm-hmm. but um, what she feels about that. But you can better believe that she's pretty upset. Actually, we do get a clue of this. Uh, we do get a clue because uh, it, it results in one of the angriest exchanges in all of the Bible. Because uh, because she tolerates these two t- times, you know, and she does no indication she rebels. But um, but later on, he fails to protect her from Hagar, who is mm-hmm. harassing her day and night. And, and, you know, she was already feeling terrible that she was barren and he, she was rubbing it in. And it was right mm-hmm. under his nose. You know, he knew what was going on. He just didn't want to get involved in, in two, uh, two women fighting. And so she finally comes to him and she explodes. I mean, she really lets him have it and says, you're the problem. You would you know, do something. And what was his response? His response essentially was that of Pilate. He washes his hands and says, here, mm-hmm. you can care, do with her what you will. You know? yeah. And of yeah. course, she's so angry, she mistreated her. And of course, Hagar ran and he had to run after her and retrieve her. And all that could have been avoided if he had just taken a firm stand on, to protect his wife against the, the, uh, uh, the abuse that she was receiving from Hagar. So her explosion over that, I think, was probably building up from both the times that he had uh, not uh, protected her with, uh, with regard to men and now not re- uh, protecting her with regard to her handmaid. And um, and I think it just was built up, and she just exploded. And and so I think she uh, was feeling very bad about it. And she certainly couldn't trust him that uh, she he wouldn't do it again. If he did it twice, he could do it a third time. So there, it, it introduced an unpredictability and uncertainty in the relationship that didn't need to be there. Yes, yes. Now you mentioned Gary. You've got uh, Jacob in two different categories, which I I thought was great because. Mm-hmm. Because it really contrasts um, how he how he behaved, 
his his emotional state toward first Leah and then later Rachel. So there there is uh, there is a figure for contrast uh, in, in how he treated Leah. Could could we say that Leah was in a loveless relationship? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, here she was. Uh, it was not Jacob's fault. It was Laban's fault. Uh, he was he uh, he fooled. Uh, I mean, Jacob was in love with Rachel, and so Laban. Uh, so he works for seven years, which was a custom in that day to work out an arrangement where he, in a sense, kind of paid the dowry and uh, and uh, to get Rachel. Well. Even at the last moment, he makes a quick, quick switch. Why did he do that? Well, Leah is described as, as rather plain looking, and so he probably thought, "I can't. I, I, I will not be able to uh, find a, a suitable mate to her. I'm going. I'm going to trick uh, uh, Jacob into taking so." So um, that's what happens. But Leah was on the short end of that stick, and uh, and she got shortchanged. Now, I he I from everything I can gather. Uh, he treated her kindly and politely, but it, kindness and politeness is nice from a stranger, but it's not what you're looking for from a husband. You're looking for intimacy. You're looking for closeness. You're looking for emotional connection. And that's what she didn't have from him. And she had to resign herself to a loveless relationship. It was, and, and admittedly, uh, Jacob was in love with Rachel and he treat, treated the children differently too, which was a major problem. Because it resulted in, in uh, the other boys uh, resenting his children, because especially with Joseph, the story of Joseph, uh, because um, he um, he favored he favored the children of Rachel, and um, and and so at one point Rachel was barren at the beginning, and she was having children, and she was hoping the children would create the bond that was otherwise missing. But it didn't work that way. But she was having babies and no love, and Rachel was having love and no babies, and uh, and so it it, uh, it it's a really wrenching story. But on the other hand, um, uh, in terms of, of Jacob, uh, I think Jacob um, his he he couldn't bring himself to uh, to even um, he couldn't bring himself to love uh, Leah. He just couldn't do that. I mean, I think, and partly I think it's because he was so in love with Rachel. And it devastated when Rachel died. And, um, and so it was, it was hard. And, and Leah knew that she couldn't be of, of uh, a solace to him because he didn't love her. He couldn't, she couldn't replace Rachel. And she knew all along that her sister was the, the uh, in her mind, uh, the, uh, uh, the princess of that home. And uh, and she didn't uh, have love, but it it also dealt, but it also shows God's mercy, because who was one of her her children, Leah's children, is Judah, and Judah became the leader of Israel, became the leader of the twelve tribes of Israel. So so and also the Messiah came from the branch of Judah, so it came from uh, from Leah, not Rachel, and so. He, in a sense, rewarded her for uh, and gave her solace in that sense, although she never knew that uh, Messiah would come from her, but uh, her line. But nonetheless, um, it's in God's mercy. He, uh, Judah, in their lifetime, actually 
I was elevated to the, at the end, Jacob gave the blessing to Judah. So, um, uh, so in the end, she got to see her child uh, become the leader of, uh, of the, the, the family of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. So um, there was solace, but, uh, but to live a life without love is a difficult experience. But it does say something about Leah, and that is her. Yes. She was obedient. She could have said, you know, I'm done with this. Yeah. But she didn't do that. She yeah. remained loyal to him, and she served him to the end of her life. Yeah. So yeah. that shows you her character. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Gary, you talk about transparency being um, a hallmark of a healthy marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine that, that you've seen this repeatedly over the years. People that uh, are either passive or aggressive, and, and especially when they're angry and they, and they just say things out of, out of hurt, um, I imagine that they believe they're being transparent about those feelings, but the, the reality is that there's something, there's something behind those emotions and those outbursts that that's really the issue. So, so uh, I guess my question is this, an emotional outburst does not, does not translate into transparency necessarily. I mean, it, it, it can, but I think in more times than not, it, it is not transparency. Trans- so what is transparency and why is that so important and, and is an indicator of a healthy marriage? Well, it, it, you touch on some very important things there. Um, when it reaches to the point where there's an outburst of emotion, it's because they've been holding things in. It's mm-hmm. because there have been a lot of things that have been secretly held in. And he'd been doing it for so long, and finally they can't hold it any longer. Actually, we see that played out with uh, Sarah and Abraham. She held in that until she finally exploded with him. And so when we when we hold things in and hold them down, and we're not transparent at the time, at the moment, then um, then it it doesn't go it doesn't go away. They always kind of think, well, if I just sit on it, it'll just go away. That doesn't happen that way. It doesn't go away, it only accumulates and becomes a cancer underneath and erodes away the, the quality of the experience in the marriage and, uh, and eventually the, the responses themselves. And so when they explode like that, uh, it's, and I think, and some of them think, you should know what I feel. You should right. know that I'm, uh, that I'm not, uh, that I'm unhappy. I don't, I shouldn't have to tell you. You should know that. And, uh, and my answer to that is, we should assume our, our spouses know nothing until we tell them that about yeah. what's going on inside our skin. Because what, the, the, what makes it toxic is this. It's left to the other spouse to make interpretations of the behavior. Yes. And interpretations are invariably wrong. And, and so, but they're, gonna, they're going to predicate their behavior on the basis of their interpretations. And, uh, and when they assume guilty until proven innocent, then, uh, which is, happens in marriages a lot, you know, it's interesting how we judge each other and our behaviors, and we conclude certain things, and we would never uh, countenance this behavior in a courtroom. We'd say, well, no, you, we assume them innocent until proven guilty. That's the fundamental basis of all justice. But in our marriages, we oftentimes assume guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And so we, we, but we build our, those conclusions on, on interpretations that can be quite an error 
because we're not told what's really going on inside by the partner. And that's where the toxicity of the relationship begins to really build because you can't meet needs, you can't solve problems, you can't deal with, um, uh, with hurt feelings, you can't deal with any of those things if you don't know they're there or you don't know you, they're not expressed, they're underground and you're, you're supposed to figure it out. We're not magicians. So it's really important to have that, uh, that kind of transparency that, that uh, says, I, I, and it actually reduces anxiety in a marriage. Because yes. if, if people are very, uh, hold everything in, have a habit of doing that, then you're always wondering when the next shoe's gonna drop. What, what else is bothering them that they're not telling mm -hmm. me about? And, uh, and inevitably it comes up. And so it creates an anxiety of anticipation that something is going to happen, but you don't know what. And um, so keeping people abreast, up to date of what, what's going on inside your skin is really helpful to a relationship. And we see examples of both, both, both when it's withheld and when it isn't in, uh, in the Bible as well. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that you stress as well, Gary, in your book, and folks, I am... I am speaking with Dr. Gary Lovejoy. The book is Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? One of the things that that you stress in the book is the importance for couples to to periodically sit down and have a conversation that it just talks about the marriage, uh, the state of the marriage, what what's going well, what not so well, what what is is a stressor, what can be done to address something here or there. How important is that? The couples sit down and give dedicated time to actual, um, could we use the phrase problem solving maybe? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, and it's, it's important uh, uh, in that regard that uh, we become uh, solution focused, not simply problem centered. Sometimes people will just go over and over and over and over like a, a entire record over the problems, but they never ever solve anything. And so we need to be solution focused. And, and, uh, and you see that in Christ's ministry. You know, they would come to him with problems, but he was always looking at the solutions. He was always telling them how to do it differently. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, uh, so anyway, in that relationship, it's very important to have periodic times when you get together, kind of evaluate where we are, because when you do that on a periodic basis, you're doing it in a less emotionally charged environment. If you wait until something gets really hot and heavy and you're upset about it and then you're trying to trying to resolve it, it's much more difficult than when you are when it's it's uh, it's caught really early on. It's kind of like in medicine, if you have early diagnosis, you have a much better prognosis. But if you if you go in and you don't you don't go to the doctor until the symptoms are so bad and then they say, I'm sorry, but uh, it's too late, you know. Uh, so the same thing is true of marriages. If the diagnosis is early, we can take care of it. If it's late, it may be too late. And so, uh, and oftentimes associated with a lot of uh, built up emotion, which blocks effective problem solving. So it's better to periodically, sometimes weekly, uh, just sit down and say, is everything going okay? Take temperature of the relationship. What, what, anything that you want to address, anything uh, that uh, would, uh, is bothering you, you'd like to talk about. That way it's done in a setting where you are already in a problem-solving mode, you're already solution-focused because you want to you want to pull out whatever's going on, and you're capable of doing that at that point. But if you wait until it's a major problem, then 
people yelling at each other and tearing each other apart and no uh, no problem solving at all is going on just airing of grievances which only uh, aggravates the situation doesn't soothe it yeah yeah for sure and that's probably a good time to discuss um this this idea that you talk about in your book, Gary, about uh, marriages becoming routinized. We're just going through the motion. Everything is a routine now. It's on autopilot. And that's really not a good place to be in, in marriage, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, a lot of people in their marriages have lost uh, the cutting edge of surprise. I I am a strong believer in uh, introducing surprise in a relationship. And what I mean by that is uh, do something, do, and when I said earlier, do something different, not just in conflict, just in normal life. Uh, I remember a man who came in and his, he said, my marriage is kind of blah. It's not, we don't, we don't argue. We don't, we're not at each other's throats. We're pleasant with each other. We're polite, but, but there's just not much going on in our relationship. And I said, uh, well, maybe you might, you might think about it. What might you, how might you approach it differently than you usually do? Try something different. Don't do the same routine. And he went out and, uh, and I didn't give him a hint of what to do. I just uh, suggested he try that. And, uh, and so he goes out and, and what he did is he reenacted his first date with her. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they went to all the places. Fortunately, they were still there and they went to all the places and then ended up on a park in which they sat and talked and, and their very first date is what uh, really triggered the relationship. And the wife was so blown away by that, by him doing this, that she was talking about it three weeks later with her friends. She couldn't stop talking about, it. you've got to hear what my husband did. In other words, and he came into me and said, I had no idea the impact that that surprise uh, thing that I did with her did. He said, I'm now into it. I'm thinking something else now. Is he, <laughs> and the relationship was more exciting. One of the reasons why a relationship uh, devolves into something boring is because they're afraid of differences. They're afraid of expressing their differences. One of the things that, uh, and if, if they are, that's a problem because what attracts us to our partners are our similarities. But what keeps us together and growing is our differences. It's what keeps the interest value in the relationship. If my wife is just a clone of who I am, she just parrots everything I think and so forth, then it's it's boring. I, I know myself. Why do I want to talk, talk <laughs> hear the same thing all, again? Uh, it's her differences that, that push me. It's her differences that make me think. It's her differences that interest me. And so what we do is because we're afraid of differences, we try to be more like each other and try to, to, to tamp down any differences. But what happens is we are destroying the interest value of the relationship. And so then a relationship becomes boring. And so it may not be conflictual. It may be simply dying by a thousand cuts of boredom. And then eventually sometimes, so I, I remember one couple got a divorce uh, in my home church and everybody was shocked because they seemed like such a nice couple. They were nice to everybody. And they seemed to be so nice to each other. But it turned out that they were, uh, they never developed their relationship. You know what? They, they had one child and they poured, both of them poured themselves into that child. When that child left home, within six months, they were divorced. Oh, wow. Because they, because they had never worked on their marriage. They'd never worked on their relationship. They had poured all their energies 
because that was potential for conflict. But with their child, they they poured themselves into that. That was less threatening to them. But when they got when it was done, when the child grew up and went left for college and left home, then they looked at each other and said, "Who are you? I don't know. Who are you?" And uh, and they eventually uh, got divorced. And so they had never developed their relationship. It was uh, it was it had atrophied over the years. We have to exercise that. So when we we take time to to uh, discuss our relationship and to, to work on it, it's uh, exercising, it's manipulating, it's it's um, not that's not uh, negative. I'm using that in a positive sense. It's massaging the relationship so that it grows and and builds. Yes. Yes. Amen. Well, Gary, you uh, you finished the book well. The, the whole book is, is well written, by the way, but you finish it extremely well. A final appraisal. Um, and and I've counted 12 bullet points here. We don't have time to go over them, but I am going to mention one and, and I'll let you comment on it. Uh, and again, folks, there is the book. Thank you, producer. Marriage is in the Bible. What do they tell us? Dr. Gary Lovejoy. A very interesting book. I think you would find it uh, informative and very helpful. If um, any of the things that we've discussed today apply to you, I would encourage you to get the book. It's there available on on Amazon. So the one bullet point, we've got just a couple of minutes, uh, Gary. Practice vigilance and prayerfully appeal to God's redemptive power in your life, which is essential to any intimate relationship. Seek first his kingdom. People want to focus on themselves or they want to point to other people as the as the problem. The other spouse is the problem in a marriage when the first thing we need to do is appeal to God. Absolutely. I I I, uh, I put that first because I think uh, and this is you see this all the way through uh, God's descriptions of the different marriages in the Bible. But uh, but that's the principle that really under undergirds it, because. Uh, because marriage is essentially a spiritual relationship, and yes. uh, it's preeminently a spiritual one, emotionally and physical, and, and all the rest as well. But but it's preeminently spiritual because it's God who ordained the relationship. And so, in that sense, uh, marriage is. In fact, there was a book once written that said the sacred marriage. Well, it is. There's a sacredness to marriage. Yes. And which makes divorce so tragic because we're breaking a sacred bond, and um, uh, and so. To when I say practice vigilance and prayerfully appeal to God's redemptive power in our lives, I'm saying we need to recognize that. I, I had a couple who came in just to illustrate this, and they uh, they said we're so busy we don't have time for God. <laughs> Basically, for devotion, mm-hmm. they felt guilty as well. We don't have you know we should have devotions together and you know bring God into our relationship. And and they admittedly were incredibly busy people. Both of them were. They both had they both had careers, and they were uh, they they were going from day to night, day into night, and uh, and they were extremely busy. And I told them, I said, "Have you ever thought of just exercising a spiritual pause?" And they said, "What is that?" And I said, "Well, uh, you, you're you're like passing ships in the night, which is probably you probably need to make some changes in terms of how you." You're running your relationship because you're running it into the ground, but we can talk about those things. But but you're also expressing guilt because you're feeling like, well, we're not really, you know, cultivating our relationship with God, and we should be having devotions and all these kinds of things. And so they were they were expressing some guilt for it. And I said, instead of feeling guilt, why don't you start with where you are? You said you think you have sixty seconds, not not anymore, just sixty seconds. 
Yeah, yeah, oh, well, we have 60 seconds. But I mean, that's not, that's not time to do anything. Oh, yes, it is. I said, what you're doing, in the morning they're getting ready. I says, when you come together in the morning, just stop for 60 seconds. And for 30 seconds, you pray for your spouse. And for the other 30 seconds, your spouse prays for you. Yes. There is, and, and he said, that's, that'll be the most powerful 60 seconds you've ever spent. <laughs> and they did that. And they said, it's amazing to hear my spouse pray for me when I'm about ready to head out to work. So mm -hmm. it's changed my whole view of life when I go out to work. Uh, when I, I heard for, for that period of time, short as it was, I heard my wife passionately pray, praying that my day would go well. Amen. And, and he said that just made all the difference. And so here he spent 60 seconds. They could do 60 seconds. And they, they felt um, that, they were, that they were drawing God back into their relationship, even if it was just a short time. We, could, we later expand, were able to expand that. They found more time. They began to realize they needed to change other things in their life. But, but the important thing is that was the starting point because they then could realize that uh, being vigilant and our appealing to God's redemptive power doesn't have to mean you have to sit down for a half hour, hour Bible study every night. It can be something as simple as that. That's right. Amen. Amen. Well, Gary, we are we are all out of time, unfortunately. This was a wonderful conversation, very enlightening, um, I'm sure, for those that have joined us. So thank you again. The book is Marriages in the Bible. What do they tell us? The author is Dr. Gary Lovejoy. Gary, appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, you're very welcome. That's all we have, friends. Please share this show with your friends on your platforms, especially those that you know are struggling in their marriage. God bless you. We'll see you next time here on WCN TV. Mm -hmm.